4: Thank you for joining us here on Exposure. It is Tuesday, February 8th, and I am Abby Newton. Now, tonight on Exposure, we will be having a special topic segment discussing the 2014 Winter Olympics. We will be exploring everything from the history of the Olympics to its host city to the athletes of the current Games to the history of Russia and the politics behind the olympics to help guide us we have talked to experts msu students and professionals also i enrolled in the online module class mega events inside the winter olympics which is instructed by a few msu professors by the end of our show you will have a comprehensive understanding of the historic athletic competition that we call the olympic games (music) The 22nd Winter Olympics are underway in Sochi, Russia, as we speak. The Olympic ceremonies were held on February 7th, welcoming athletes and spectators from around the world. But the Olympic Games actually originated in Olympia over 2,500 years ago. To honor the birthplace of the Games, the Olympic flame is still lit in Olympia each year. This time, it was lit on September 29th, 2013, and has been carried around the globe ever since. Now, the Olympic Games were actually banned in... 393 393 A.D. Mm. Now, the Olympic Games were actually banned in 393 A.D. for some time because a Roman Emperor considered them to be a pagan ritual. But they were brought back by Pierre de Coubertin in 1894. He recognized how the Olympics linked sports and human development. Now, the Winter Games were not created as an independent event until 1924. The first Winter Games were in Chamonix, France, but the first recognized Games were held four years later in Saint- Switzerland, And here we are today. Sochi, Russia has welcomed about 2,900 Olympic athletes from 89 countries and 1,700 Paralympians from 45 countries, CNN reports. Fans from 124 countries have made their way to the Games as well. But Sochi did not get the opportunity to host the Games from happenstance. It's a long process. The country competed against Salzburg, Austria and Pyeongchang, South Korea to host the Games. Our reporter Santiago Montiel found out how Sochi was the one who was voted to host the Olympic Games.
5: Choosing Sochi, Russia as the host city for the Winter Olympics has confused some people. Sochi, a city known for its warm weather and beach resorts, seems like an odd place to host the Games. But it is also a sign of the long controversial process of choosing a host city. To host the Olympic Games, cities have to submit an application nine years before the actual competition. The official Olympic website says candidates for the 2022 Winter Olympics have already applied and a winner will be chosen in July of this year. This gives host cities eight years to prepare the logistics and infrastructure of the Games. When Sochi applied to host this year's Olympics, it competed against Salzburg, Austria and Pyeongchang, South Korea. Javier Pescador, a sports history professor at MSU, says that for the most part, host cities end up losing money in the long term.
6: So Olympic Games as economic enterprises don't always materialize. And that is something that needs to be uh, reconsidered.
5: The cost of Sochi's Winter Olympics was estimated at $12 billion when the proposal was submitted. Now, several media outlets are reporting that the cost is at least $44 billion. The Guardian reports that its cost now is of $51 billion, and Bloomberg says $7 billion more will be needed to maintain the facilities after the Olympics. However, the International Business Times reports that for Sochi, it will be a profitable event in the long run. So, can hosting these type of events really help a city? Carl Oaks, a sophomore at MSU and a hockey fan, says that Detroit hosting the Olympics would give the city a chance to redevelop.
7: If they could get funding from somewhere <laughs> because Detroit doesn't have any money, but uh, that, that would be not, that would be good for the city. Like, there's plenty of areas where they could just tear down sections of the city to build places for the Olympics, and I, I always thought it would be a, a cool idea.
5: Pescador argues that Detroit hosted the Super Bowl with the intention of attracting attention the same way the Olympic Games do, but it did not work out economically.
6: The Super Bowl was hosted in Detroit, and there was a party, there was a lot of people coming in. And then after they left, right, the city of Detroit did not reap the substantial benefits that were expected.
5: Pescador says world tournaments like the FIFA World Cup and the Olympic Games are designed to bring out the culture of the host country in a positive light. Yet Russia did not expect to be exposed as negatively as it is now. Several media outlets have reported on complaints by journalists, athletes and spectators about the conditions in Sochi. Oakes says it's funny how media have covered the Olympics and how the rest of the world is viewing Sochi.
7: There's the uh, satire article the other day about Putin killing the uh, uh, guy that screwed up with the Olympic rings. A lot of people believe that, but it was a fake article. The rest of us just see it, see it through TV and other media, and they tell you how terrible it is with how nothing's finished and we're only getting negative reports, so...
5: The next Olympic Games host cities will be Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in 2016 for the Summer Games and Pyeongchang, South Korea in 2018 for the Winter Games. For Impact News, I'm Santiago Montiel.
4: Now, I also sat down with MSU professor in the School of Planning, Design, and Construction, Mark Wilson, to discuss how a city is chosen to host and the work that goes on into hosting, as well as the legacy that is left after the Games. Mark is one of the professors who created the open online class Mega Events inside the Winter Olympics.
8: It is a challenging location for an Olympics. It's the warmest city that's ever hosted the Olympics. And if you look at the climate change data going forward it's unlikely that it will ever be able to be used for an Olympics again. So given that cities host maybe 20, 30 years apart, Mm -hmm. in 20 or 30 years, Sochi will not be able to provide the snow cover needed for an Olympics. So in fact, a lot of the past hosts of the Olympics uh, because of climate change are no longer possible. Mm-hmm. Squaw Valley, which hosted the uh, Olympics in the 60s in the U.S., is not likely in 30 years' time to be able to host another Olympics. Mm-hmm. So Sochi uh, is a, a very political decision by the, the the Russian president, and it is somewhat marginal climatically, which is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other issue is, was the investment worth it? And one of the areas that urban planning is really interested in is... Do you get value from your investment in something like the Olympics? Mm-hmm. Now, we classify these all as mega events. So the World's Fair, um, the World Cup, the Soccer World Cup in uh, Brazil mm-hmm. in uh, this summer, um, the Olympics, they're all gigantic events that cost billions. And we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Do we get value from it? Uh, Sochi spent $51 billion. It's the most expensive mega event ever held. Uh, London cost $14 billion. Vancouver cost $8 billion. So they're expensive, even the ones that look reasonably priced in retrospect. Uh, So Sochi has spent a huge amount of money creating facilities. And the question is not will it be a good Olympics. They've done an outstanding job. The facilities look great. Uh, Besides a few hiccups, everything seems to be working. So as a venue for the Olympics, it seems to be going very well. The question is, when the Olympics is over, what do you have left? And our concern as planners is that a lot of the decisions made for this Olympics are not going to provide value afterwards. So they spent over $8 billion on a road-rail connection between the coastal cluster and the mountain cluster. That one link cost more than the entire Vancouver 2010 Olympics. And after this event is over, it's use will be minimal. And so we have a huge investment for a three-week period. Mm -hmm. Uh, So planners often look at these events as a means to an end. It's not that we want to have the Olympics and we're done. It's how will the Olympics take us to the next level. Mm -hmm. And good cities often plan so that everything that's left over from the Olympics is really valuable later on. If you haven't planned carefully, you end up with a lot of white elephants that mm-hmm. don't have a use. The um, the beautiful stadium in Beijing, the Bird's Nest Stadium, isn't being used. And Beijing's spending $11 million a year uh, to maintain the structure, but no one is using it. It doesn't have a use. And so that's what we would hope host cities would avoid, mm-hmm. that whatever they build will in fact be used for something in the future.
4: Sure. Mm-hmm. And looking back on, you know, you talked about the decision yep. to host in Sochi. Yep. So how does that decision come about from start to finish in terms of who gets to host the next Olympics? Oh,
8: yeah, it's, it's quite a detailed process. Absolutely. And, and this could easily be a, a decade plus long process. Uh, so to begin with, you need an interest in hosting the event. And that often comes from leadership, government leadership, business leaders, sports leaders, who feel that their city would benefit from an Olympics. Uh, Then there is a fair amount of due diligence needed. Can we actually do it? And often at this stage, cities will pull out. So Minneapolis was thinking of a Winter Olympics bid, and uh, a year ago decided it was not viable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was before it even got into the process. So there are dozens of cities thinking about an Olympic bid, but very few that go all the way to uh, the short list. The next stage is nine years before the event. The International Olympic Committee will announce that they are seeking host cities. And you then provide a fairly detailed dossier, uh, a book of your ability to host. Mm -hmm. Up to this point, you could have spent tens of millions of dollars just to get to that point. Your city has to be ready for a bid. You have to have plans for what it would take to host, quite elaborate plans Mm -hmm. uh, that um, lead to hundreds if not thousands of pages of information. After that, you are called an applicant city. And so you apply to be a host. And then an IOC subcommittee reviews all of the applicants And then it comes down to a short list, which could be three to five cities. Those are then called uh, bid cities, that they are contenders, candidate cities. And then that group uh, has even more scrutiny and has to uh, host visits by IOC members to show and justify what they're doing, how they're investing in the event. Uh, Then a decision is made. So at the moment we're looking at the 2022 Winter Olympics Uh, there is an applicant list. In June, the candidate cities will be chosen, three to five cities, and then another year after that, they will will be chosen. So they have six to seven years to prepare for the event. So this is something that is not just decided uh, a couple of years before. (laughs) This takes a history, and it also takes a history of proving your ability. Mm -hmm. So if you've never hosted a big event in your city, you need to start hosting smaller events to prove that you can do it. So you go for regional events or anything with a large scale that you can say, look, we can handle this many tourists. Our airport can handle the crowds. We have venues. We have people that can manage this many people. Mm -hmm. So it really is a long-term strategy that could, as I said, go well beyond a decade uh, before you even think about it.
4: Um, and you said six to seven years to prepare yep. once you you know understand that yep. you have the bid. Is that enough time, you think?
8: Uh, well, a lot of cities already have a lot of the work done mm-hmm. in process anyway. Uh, And and usually cities do manage to get things built in time. Um, Even Sochi, where people were complaining things weren't ready, the things that counted, like the athletes' venues uh, and the athletic village, were pretty much ready on time. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are certainly cosmetic areas that are not done. But generally, it is enough time. I think the the question is, do we need so much new stuff for Mm -hmm. the Olympics? Uh, because often you may have quite serviceable buildings and stadiums and facilities, but decide to build a new one because you want the Olympics to, to be somehow special. Sure. But that can lead you to a lot of expense, a lot of extra building, and white elephants when everything is over.
4: And in terms of this monstrous cost versus yeah. benefit, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts? Um, th-
8: there can be benefits. Mm-hmm. And cities that choose wisely... Um, we'll find that the benefits are worthwhile. Uh, The key is not to see the Olympics as the end product. Mm -hmm. The key is to see the city in the future as having a certain character design structure. And then you use the Olympics to get there. Mm -hmm. But frequently cities just focus on the Olympics. So if we look at case studies, Barcelona is considered one of the best examples of an Olympic city because they worked out what they wanted the city to look like in the future and used the Olympics to get them there. Mm -hmm. You have other cases like Athens, which build huge sporting complexes that have essentially been vacated. No one is using them. They're paying the upkeep, um, a huge investment that has been lost. It was used for the Olympics and that was it. So cities need to think about what they get at the end and whether it will be useful.
4: And do you think the majority of cities do a good job at looking at that future benefit? Uh,
8: I I think there's mixed, Mm -hmm. that some cities do good things and bad things. So when we look at Vancouver, one of the impressive things they did was they built a railway line between the airport and downtown. Mm -hmm. A lot of workers at the airport, a lot of tourists, a lot of vehicles not on the roads, in fact, people using public transit. It was a a worthy investment. Uh, But other investments... uh, not so cost effective. So, when you see a city, you can look at some things and say, This was a good investment, this wasn't. So, it's hard to generalize. Sure. You almost have to go venue by venue through what they've built. Mm-hmm. And are we going to use it again? Uh, can we dismantle it and sell it or give it to uh, another city or country? Uh, or will we be paying maintenance on this for decades to come? Right.
4: Mm. Um, And you're from Australia, which has had the Sydney Olympics. So what were your thoughts on how they handled
8: that? Some (laughs) things they did very well. Uh, The positives of the Sydney Olympics was it took what we call a brownfield site, which is an old industrial site, uh, and they cleaned it up, took away toxic materials. uh, They discovered some endangered species in the process. They made reserves, wetlands. They built facilities. Uh, That was very good. It took old land that wasn't being used, turned it into a very productive use. On the other hand, Sydney built a railway line that hardly gets used from the city out to the uh, facility. Mm -hmm. Uh, They built a station that can handle hundreds of thousands of people an hour that doesn't get used much anymore. So it had some positives and had some negatives. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as an event, it went very well. The the, uh, facilities were good. Athletes uh, liked the location. Uh, It was great for Sydney's visibility. It provided a lot of uh, PR Mm -hmm. um, um, recognition. Uh, uh, But some of the investments were not as wise as they might have been.
4: Mm And from an urban planning standpoint, yep. how difficult is it to take yourself away from the glory of hosting the yep. Olympics and trying to make it this giant special event to its you know, productive end-all be-all benefit?
8: It, it, it is a challenge. Uh, and I think planners will often be in there arguing for what is most useful. And planners are often arguing against the plans <laughs> that a city may want that sometimes cities end up with new facilities they don't need, but they say, we want a brand new stadium. We want something spectacular. Uh, South Africa, um, which hosted the World Cup in 2010 for for soccer, um, built new stadiums on top of old stadiums. It's a country that didn't have the resources Mm -hmm. to invest. And so planners would say, you can retrofit what you've got, and it will be good for a one month event. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is the internal discussion about how to use the event. And there's often dissent. There will be opposing views about what to build, how much to spend, uh, how to design the city going Mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. But I think planners may see the event as a way, as a vehicle to get public interest in what our city would look like Mm -hmm. in the future. But if it's ignored, uh, which it often is, uh, you end up with problems afterwards.
4: So mental note, listen to the logic
8: of yeah, the yeah, Exactly. <laughs> talk, talk to your planners. They, uh, they know what they're doing and they may be able to actually get you a much better result. Mm-hmm than simply going in and saying, let's build something spectacular Mm -hmm. and not worry about what happens when the event's over.
4: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my last questions Mm -hmm. is, looking at America, what Mm -hmm. do you feel would be a perfect city to host an
9: Olympics?
8: That's a good question. Uh, The perfect city would be a city that has most of what you need already. Mm -hmm. So you would look at past cities. So Salt Lake City would be a logical Winter Olympics Mm -hmm. uh, site. It has the infrastructure. Um, Larger cities tend to be better uh, because the challenge for the Winter Olympics is mountain resorts don't have a lot of capacity. Mm. They don't have tens of thousands of hotel rooms. They don't have freeways, Mm. Uh, they don't have rail lines. So mountain resorts tend to be highly problematic. So if you can have your Winter Olympics, as Sochi has done, in a city um, that is not in the mountains, uh, and Turin, Italy did that, Vancouver did, Salt Lake City did, then these are cities that can use their current capacity. They don't have to build a new airport, they don't have to build new transit systems, and they often have a lot of hotel rooms. And then they can use the surrounding resorts. Uh, one thing that many people don't realize is Denver had the 76 Olympics, and uh, it lost it because the voters of Colorado voted it down in 1973. And so Denver was planning to host the Olympics, and it has the same potential. It is. A large city, it won't need new airports or transit, and it has a huge array of uh, winter sports facilities nearby. Uh, In terms of the summer games, uh, a lot of it depends on how much of your current uh, infrastructure you can use. Mm -hmm. So if you have a city like Los Angeles, which is hosted several times already, it has hotel rooms, it has light rail, it has airports, it won't take too much to scale that city to another Olympics. But a city that's never done that is going to face a huge amount of investment. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, Detroit has bid for the Olympics more than any other city. Oh, I didn't know and that. it was a shortlisted city for the 68 Olympics, which went to Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Detroit has in the past sought the Olympics uh, and planned fairly substantial new developments uh, to host them. Uh, but I... That is not in its future at the moment. Um, <laughs> <Probably not. laughs> it's, it's, it's an expensive luxury mm. that should only be afforded by cities that have most of what they need in place already. Mm. So one city that's interested in it is Washington, Baltimore. Mm. A lot of facilities are already there. There's a lot of public transit. There's three main airports. There's plenty of hotel space. They're already on their way to being able to host a big event. Mm. Uh, and in that regard, uh, the extra effort needed to host a a mega event is not so great. But a city without those resources uh, would not be, I think, a good contender.
4: Mm. And is there anything else you'd like to add just about the hosting, the legacy Mm. Uh, or the Olympics in general? uh,
8: Yes, we have an online course, a massive open online course uh, called a MOOC. Uh, It's through Mm canvas.net. Just Google canvas and the course is mega events inside the winter olympics and we have experts uh talking we have short video clips we have trivia quizzes it's called a course but we really see it more as a companion as you go Mm -hmm. through the olympics to talk about some of the issues of the olympics so we've loved doing this Uh, we're hoping to do one on the world cup in May, june so we'll be reporting on brazil stadiums the events of the uh, the football championship So we see this as a great way of reaching out to people and perhaps making the experience a little more thoughtful Mm -hmm. of asking people, look below the surface of the Olympics because what you will see is as interesting as the events you're you're watching on the surface.
4: Absolutely, and do you have a favorite event?
8: No, I actually like all of them. Uh, I just just like seeing how they work out. Mm -hmm. Uh, I appreciate the effort that athletes put into even getting to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. We tend to be preoccupied only with those that win a medal. But everyone who got there, I think, deserves to be recognized for the effort they've put in.
4: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's addicting. It is. It (laughs) really is. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Mark Wilson. We appreciate it.
8: It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You're listening to
4: Impact Exposure. Exposure. Welcome back. I am Abby Newton, and you are listening to Exposure. Tonight, we are having complete coverage of the Winter Olympics. We spoke about the history of the Games and how a host city is selected. But let's explore the actual country of Russia. Every Olympics, the host city is responsible for having an opening ceremony. This year, Sochi showed its country's rich history during the ceremony. I spoke with MSU history professor Louis Siegelbaum about the country.
10: Okay. Well, the Olympics uh, opening ceremony uh, tried to cover a 1,000 years of <laughs> Russian history uh, in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, its version was very interesting in terms of uh, what, what was shown, um, and I suppose as well what wasn't. Uh, but uh, one could say that the, the Russian state began actually in present-day Ukraine, um, the Kievan state from the 10th century or so. It was the state that adopted Christianity, uh, the Eastern Orthodox version of Christianity, and um, spread uh, sort of north and eastwards, um, eventually being overtaken by two events. Uh, one, uh, the uh, invasion from the east of uh, uh, Mongols or Tatars, as Russians refer to them, And secondly, uh, in connection with that, the emergence of new principalities, uh, of which Muscovy was uh, the most powerful. And it's the Muscovite state that uh, was the basis for um, the Russian state that emerged by the 17th century, 16th century uh, under Ivan the Terrible. Who is known for many things aside from being terrible, uh, but um, the, the decisive defeat of the of the Tatars uh, probably being um, uh, included among them. So it's Peter the Great who was shown in that um, opening ceremony sort of vignette, who is normally associated with uh, Russia's um, breaking into. Uh, breaking out of its uh, isolation from the West from 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 the rest of Europe um, that's a little oversimplified but for the sake of being a benchmark it's it's not a bad uh, uh, index and uh, so it's in the early 18th century uh, under Peter that the Russian state, begins to interact in uh, not only a military, but but also cultural and educational way with uh, the rest of Europe, uh, at least on on the same plane. And um, the Russian state that emerges under successive czars uh, expands mostly to the south and east uh, at the expense of Muslim peoples, well into Central Asia, and the Russian Empire of the 19th century um, is one of the great empires of uh, the world, and but its attempt to modernize um, brought about all kinds of unintended consequences, including, um, associated with its industrial development, a working class that was the basis for the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 that uh, bring ushers in the Soviet state under Lenin, but uh, Lenin uh, was already dead by 1924. And uh, was eventually uh, succeeded by Stalin, who pushes through a much more thoroughgoing modernization, um, largely for statist reasons, uh, to to uh, make the Soviet state less vulnerable to uh, to attack and uh, and conquest. Uh, at the expense of uh, what were perceived to be, and for all intents and purposes, were hostile powers on it, on its borders. Uh, and indeed, um, by the time the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, um, the Soviet Union had undergone uh, its um, most intense uh, industrialization um, period. Uh, and uh, corresponding temporally with the Great Depression and much of the rest of the world. This this industrialization, bureaucratization, uh, the terror associated with Stalin, all of this uh, uh, leaves a legacy for his successors that uh, Gorbachev in the 1980s uh, tried to, well, initially Khrushchev in the 1960s, and then uh, Gorbachev, um, um, more so in the late eighties, tried to distance themselves from and 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 of course uh, Soviet citizens in general. But uh, by the late nineteen eighties, the Soviet Union and its project had pretty much run out of out of steam. The constituent states of the Soviet Union that had been created by the Soviet regime um, had spawned. Uh, indigenous national uh, elites that decided the game was up and it was uh, better to detach their respective republics from the Soviet Union. And that's one of the reasons for its collapse in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, And so what had been 16 Soviet republics became um, independent states, the Russian Federation emerging out of the Russian part of the former Soviet Union, and uh first in the chaotic 90s under under Boris Yeltsin uh um, a time that uh, was miserable for just about all Russians except for those uh few who known as the oligarchs um, managed to buy up enormous chunks of what had been state property and uh and uh, at at very little cost to themselves um But uh, under Putin, since the year uh, 2000, uh, uh, much more social stability, much more political stability, uh, albeit uh, 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 thanks to uh, a certain degree of political repressiveness, has led to uh, uh, better times economically for most people. Uh, It's not that the oligarchs uh, had had uh, disappeared by, by no means, uh, but um, something in the way of a, uh, a middle class has emerged in Russia. And um, uh, this uh, goes some way, at least, towards explaining why Putin, um, despite repressiveness, despite vocal opposition, despite international condemnation, uh, remains um, uh, quite popular or at least has uh, considerable support within, uh, within Russia.
4: Mm-hmm. I
10: think I'll stop there.
4: And the United States is just an infant compared to Russia.
10: Yeah. Well, there's a lot more to draw on, uh, in terms of national history in the case of Russia and, um, uh, periodically they do. And I think that was also on display in the, in the opening ceremony. Um, uh, there are nonetheless, uh, you know, considerable and fairly obvious similarities with the United States. So continental expansion, mm-hmm. Is one uh, in the case of Russia, uh, it, it's greater because it's not it's Eurasia. <laughs> it's all across the northern tier of, of Asia that uh, that Russia expanded. Um, uh, there's there are similarities in terms of enslavement of uh, of people uh, in the case of the United States, uh, uh, Africans um, exported from Africa for that purpose. In the case of Russia, its own peasants um, uh, who were ensurfed—it's uh, not slavery as such, but it's uh, it's using coercion to keep people um, uh, tied to particular places uh, mm-hmm. against their will—and um, um, their emancipations uh, occurred um, uh, very close, very close to each other. 1861, in the case of uh, the serfs uh, in 1863, in the case of uh, of the slaves, mm-hmm. um, and uh, these two powers uh, emerging from the Second World War as uh, uh, the, the the twin victors, if you like, um, uh, and uh, the rivals as the Cold War emerged, uh, have this uh, interesting sort of fifty year or so relationship whereby, in many cases, the, the way in which each um, came to think of itself was very much dependent on um, a kind of uh, construction of a kind of negative other. Mm-hmm. So uh, whatever we thought we were up to and, and were about uh, tended to be shaped in some ways by projections of what the Soviet Union was, and we were, we were the opposite. And that's true also in the case of the Soviet Union. Now, despite that, uh, there were borrowings, Um, each borrowing bits from the other, each, uh, um, in some cases, uh, thereby shaped by the other. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a very interesting, complicated uh, relationship
4: what were your thoughts on the opening ceremony itself and how Russia painted its history?
10: actually was quite taken with the the uh, the sort of scenarios that were that were painted um, uh, and um, uh, I wouldn't say upset but uh, somewhat disappointed with the way in which it, it was reported, mm-hmm. um, both while the ceremony was going on. And uh, in the media afterwards. Uh, and that is that uh, I think it, it, it was disingenuous. Uh, it was uh, sort of uh, somewhat um, tendentious to claim that uh, they should have included uh, negative parts of their history, uh, because no host country in any Olympics uh, sh- should be expected to do so and had, or has done so. Uh, at the same time, um, I thought that the, uh, the technical glitch, um, the fact that one of the rings didn't open, uh, one of these snowflake rings remained a snowflake rather than a ring, Mm uh, it was harped on to an excessive degree, um, as if technical glitches, you know, didn't, haven't occurred before or, uh. Were exclusive to to Russia, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I also thought that the imaginativeness of what was on display um, was was uh, really quite something. Uh, I myself was particularly taken with the section on uh, Soviet industrialization. That's probably a subjective view because I've worked on on that um, probably more than any other subject in Soviet history. Um, but uh, it, it was uh, very much in the constructivist art uh, uh, vein, uh, which was characteristic of, uh, of an, art, an artistic uh, movement in, in Russia in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. Um, so, in a word, I liked it.
4: And uh, what do you feel would be the best way to describe what Russia's like today? So if I'm, you know, a tourist and I'm about to go to Russia, what would you say about its culture as well as um, maybe kind of its environment?
10: Mm. Uh, well, first, uh, there are enormous differences, enormous inequalities. Um, so uh, someone going just to Moscow or, let's say, Moscow and St. Petersburg would be struck by um, how uh, um, bright and um, wealthy um, many parts of those cities are and um, uh, how well-dressed people are and um, it's really uh, quite impressive. Uh, but getting out of those cities, uh, going to provincial towns uh, or even more so the countryside, uh, one can't help but be struck by um, uh, the impoverishment that uh, remains Um i think indicative of the fact that moscow and petersburg really have become world cities in some ways and are much much more uh... connected to the rest of the world in, in many respects than they are to to the rest of, of russia um, uh, don't expect um, everyone to speak english if you go <laughs> uh... it's not one of those countries like the netherlands uh, where virtually everyone does speak english uh, Russians, um, all, although increasingly, are, are studying English. Um, uh, there's been a bit of uh, kind of nationalistic backlash to the, um, the the hits that that Russia and Russians took in the 1990s. So there's there's you know there's a kind of assertiveness of of uh, Russian. Uh, culture and, uh, and uh, Russian power uh, that um, uh, I think is associated with the comeback that Putin uh, loudly proclaims, mm-hmm. uh, this, of course, being one of the main reasons for uh, Russia hosting these Olympics. Um, you know, Russia is back is the message, I think, that is being projected.
4: And uh, my last question is, what were your thoughts when you found out uh, that Russia was going to host the Olympics, and how do you feel that they've done so far?
10: Well, I think I, like uh, m- many people, w- were uh, were amazed that a uh, Winter Olympics could be held in Sochi, mm-hmm. which is among the more uh, uh, temperate, if not semi-tropical places uh, in, in the vastness of Russia. Uh, but, of course, uh much of the uh, the snow events are are held in in the Caucasus, in the mountains uh, above or to the east of of the um, resort town of Sochi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, I I uh, was uh, sort of awestruck as as to how much uh, had to be done to uh, to make to turn Sochi into uh, the Olymp- the Olympic uh, headquarters um uh and uh i like many people have been critical of uh the uh, violation of environment uh, of the environment um of of um a lot of other things associated with the building of the structures for for hosting the olympics that said um Again, it's not as if uh, Russia is unique in this respect. Number one, and number two, uh, I think that so far, um, a lot of the criticism of of the of the uh, the whole thing and the uh, expectations of uh, mishaps and doom and gloom, uh, at least thus far, have uh, proven um, not to be and they're quite successful.
4: In Russia's relationship with the United States is certainly intertwined in its history. Impacts Ian Wendra researched the history of this relationship. He used his previous knowledge in various sources on the internet to get the full understanding. And here's the story.
6: That was the sound of Mike Carusooni scoring the winning goal in the famous Miracle on Ice game. The match was between the United States and the Soviet Union, held in Lake Placid, New York, at the 1980 Winter Olympics. It was a Soviet hockey team's first loss after dominating every world championship and Olympics since 1964. The game symbolized America's strength, and it almost predicted what was to become of Russia-U.S. relations. That very same year, President Reagan declared the end of the detente policy for the Cold War, reigniting political and military tensions between the two superpowers. This is not a simple coincidence. The Miracle on Ice is as much of an allegory to US-Russian relations as it is to the previous century of Olympic competition. This story of two titans flexing their power in the confines of an Olympic stadium dates back to 1900 when Russia made its first appearance. The early Olympic Games were less of a competition between actual countries and more of a chance for individual athletes to show off their skills. Nevertheless, the United States triumphed in these games with the Russian Empire producing only a handful of medalists. Imperial Russia's inability to compete against the great powers in the 1908 and 1912 Olympics seemed to represent its real world conditions. Russia saw defeat in the Russo-Japanese War and the abdication of the last emperor, Nicholas II, following a revolution in 1905. With the Bolsheviks in power after the revolution of 1917, Russia's alliance with England was cast aside by Lenin and his revolutionary cohorts. Lenin sought to establish Russia as a world power. These goals, and World War II, stole the newly Christian Soviet Union from participating in the Olympics until 1952, wherein Russia won 71 medals, placing them in second behind America's 76. It was the beginning of a heated competition, both in sports and geopolitics, as the Cold War was officially underway.
5: Scenes on the Austro-Hungarian border measure the scope of Hungary's
0: anti-red revolt. West Hungary is rebel control. From the uniforms of border guards, from the flags, the Red Star has been ripped. The hated symbol of communism is effaced
5: wherever found. As sporadic fighting continues, the Red Regime offers virtual self-rule, and Russian forces begin withdrawals.
6: 1956 in particular was a brutal year. The Hungarian Revolution began but was crushed by the Soviets while the Red Scare spread to the U.S. All the while, the U.S. and Soviet arms race was rapidly growing. The Olympic Games of this and following years reflected this political competition. Though Russia would beat the U.S. in the medal count, the 1956 Olympics are marked for the infamous blood-in-the-water match. Hungary's water polo team beat Russia 4-0 against the backdrop of the Hungarian Revolution. The Soviet Union would go on to win most of the events, with many of their medals coming from gymnastics, wrestling, and weightlifting. The Soviets' manic push for Olympic and global dominance wouldn't end there. From 1960 until 1980, the Soviet Union would continue to outdo the United States at the Olympics while leading the charge in the Cold War. Their expansion into the African continent, Latin America, and Southeast Asia during these decades would force the United States to play catch-up most of the time. This led to its involvement in the Vietnam, Angolan Civil, and Ethio-Somali War, not to mention the overthrow of Chile's Communist government by the CIA. With the specter of war in all parts of the world, It's a wonder that Olympic competitions were held at all. Russia's relentless drive to best the U.S. as a superpower seemed to be paying off for them. That is, until the 80s.
1: The red flag came down over the Kremlin tonight as President Gorbachev resigned and brought to an end seven decades of communist rule in the Soviet Union. Right to the last, Mr. Gorbachev said he was unhappy at the breakup of the country, but he pledged to do everything he could for the new Commonwealth of Independent Republics.
6: The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is a major reason that a taunt ended between the U.S., Britain, and Soviet Union. The United States boycotted the 1980 Moscow Summer Olympics in response to the invasion. Russia then boycotted the 1984 Olympics, being held in Los Angeles. The U.S. armament of Afghan Mujahideen fires was its final military engagement for the Cold War. This, and Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev's reforms, caused the USSR demise from a world goal power. It could be argued that the Miracle on Ice proved that the U.S. had won the Cold War before it truly ended. As time went on, Russia would continue to slip from being in the top three ranked countries in the Olympics. But here we are today, the 22nd Winter Olympics are being held in Sochi, Russia, and it means everything to the country. Sochi's opening ceremony showed Russians as dreamers, as people who reached for greatness even before a unified Russia existed. With a hard-fought overtime win by the U.S. hockey team over Russia on Saturday, we see similarities to the Miracle on Ice match. However, a reversal of roles has occurred. The 1980 game demonstrated America's strength and power. And now, Sochi is Russia's attempt to recapture its former glory. For Impact News, I'm Ian Wendra.
4: Again, we attribute that knowledge to Ian himself in various news sources and websites. Now this history and relationship is certainly evolving. During these games, Russia made a proclamation that will most likely be noted and remembered in this evolution of history. In fact, Spencer Ray has this story.
7: Six months prior to the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia, the Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a bill banning the propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations to minors. There were many organizations and countries that were outraged by the proclamation. President Obama sent openly gay athletes to the Olympic delegation, making an international statement.
0: When it comes to the Olympics and athletic performance, we don't make distinctions on the basis of sexual orientation.
10: We judge people on how they perform, both on the court and off the on the field and off the field.
7: Michigan State University journalism professor Sue Carter says sometimes the Olympics are treated as more than just a platform for athletic competition.
1: For the athletes, it's really important for them to recognize that they are there to perform as athletes. Too often in the past, we have treated Olympics as uh, a venue for expressing political opinions.
7: But the conversation of gay rights has been brought to light during these Olympic Games. Carter says she's amazed at the progress that has been made with gay rights. However...
1: It's amazing that after decades and decades of, in some countries, very serious oppression against gays and lesbians, that uh, that we're getting a much more informed, enlightened view of gays and lesbians in the workplace, in sports, at the Olympics, and now in the NFL.
7: Deanna Hilbert is the director of the LGBT Resource Center at Michigan State. She says there's still progress to be made, not only in Russia, but in the United States.
9: It's it's a little hard to see Russia being kicked around on the, on the topic, where in terms of Having folks from the United States being so uh, all-American flag waving about it when the United States doesn't have a ton to brag about themselves.
7: Hilbert also says she doesn't think there are well-known leaders in the push for gay rights in either country.
9: There aren't a whole lot of heroes in national politics in terms of Russia, in terms of uh, human rights and rights for LBGT folks in particular. Here in the United States, we can say the same thing. There aren't a ton of heroes that, are, that we can point to in national politics.
7: But still, there are openly gay Olympic athletes in Sochi right now. Among them are Bill Brockhoff, an Australian snowboarder, Irene Wust, a Dutch speed skater, and Cheryl Maas, a Dutch snowboarder. Brockhoff had a very vocal protest against Russia's legislation during an interview with Australia's ABC TV late August of 2013. The 20-year-old snowboarder said she wanted to show Putin how successful gay and lesbian athletes could be. Sue Carter says the best thing to do is enhance the discussion on gay rights.
1: The Olympics being in Sochi right now and having a strong gay presence uh, of former athletes and indeed some athletes who are, who are there participating certainly opens up the discussion a little bit more in Russia, and it may, at the end of the day, take some pressure off of the persecution that gays and lesbians are under in Russia. Work within the system and change the system.
7: One thing is for certain, in its history, the Olympics have never brought gay rights to the surface as much as it has in these games. For Impact News, I'm Spencer Ray. You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure.
1: Exposure.
4: I am Abby Newton, and this is Impact Exposure on Impact 89FM. Again, we are giving you complete coverage of the Olympic Games here in Exposure. Behind the history, the city, and the relations of the Olympics, there lies the athletics. There are 98 events in 15 sports in the 2014 Olympics. Among them we have alpine skiing, the biathlon, bobsleigh, cross-country skiing, figure skating, Nordic combined, ski jumping, snowboarding, and the list goes on. Now the sports of the Winter Games seem to be a bit more unusual than those of the Summer Games. Before we get too far, I thought it'd be neat to see how some of these sports have actually made their way to Michigan. To start, curling. Impact's Lauren Gillespie can explain the sport much better than I can.
11: Ever heard of curling? No,
2: I I mean, honestly, I can't explain curling that well.
11: Curling is a sport on ice. You, it's a, is it a puck? Isn't it where they have little disc things on the floor and they have to push them to a certain point? Close, but not exactly. The sport of curling is nothing short of strategy, precision, and the ability to communicate with teammates. The game involves two opposing teams working toward one common goal. The players slide granite stones down a sheet of ice toward a target known as the house. The objective is to get as close to the center as possible. This is how you score points. Basically it's three steps. First, one person releases the 40 pound stone. It travels down the ice with the help of a teammate to sweep and clear its path. And lastly, it reaches its desired bullseye. Mark Mickleby, president of the Lansing Curling Club, is no stranger to explaining the dynamics of the winter sport.
3: I think it's a perfect combination for me. I think it's you know you don't have to be the biggest, fastest, strongest guy. You have to be you have to be balanced. You have to know the strategy that you need to use. You have to um, you got to be smart about things. You got to be smart about the shots you call. You got to know your teammates. You rely on your teammates probably more than in almost any other sport.
11: So it seems curling is only heard about when the Winter Olympics roll around every four years. For Micklewee, he began watching the sport on TV in his hometown of Detroit when he was young. Years later, he tried it out for himself.
3: Detroit, the curling club built a brand new arena dedicated for curling in, uh, at the end of 2001. And so, once 2002 came around, the Olympics, it got a lot of uh, interest, and uh, I went down for a beginner's clinic, and I was hooked.
11: On Tuesday nights, you'll find Micklewee practicing with the Detroit team. And on Friday evenings, he's curling in his current hometown at Summit Ice Arena in Lansing. Micklewee is part of the newer Lansing Curling Club, founded in 2010. Although he says the Summit has been great to work with, his passion for the sport is what makes him want to move forward with more playtime rather than just his two days a week.
3: What it makes me want, it makes me want to not have to come here and rent ice. It makes me want to find a place to do it, dedicated ice here.
11: Mark was even able to get his wife, Corey McLeay, into the sport.
9: I resisted it for quite a while, and then finally he said, well, let's just come give it a try. So I went down and gave it a try with them and got hooked.
11: Contrary to Mark, Corey says she's not a competitive person at all, but that wasn't why she was reluctant to try.
9: I just... um. I didn't think I could do it, it looked really hard, <laughs> and, uh, and I was kind of afraid, you know, I don't know, I'd make a fool out of myself and stuff, but, um, and he really enjoyed it, so I thought, well, it must be pretty fun, so I got out there and overcame it.
11: Curling is based on the same important element that's required in a relationship to make a team successful.
9: Communication, and,
3: which is really important, I mean, it's communication, you've got to be listening, and you've got to, you have to be able to pick your skip's voice out of a crowd you're not the only game going on usually at a tournament like that, so if there's a lot of yelling, you've got to, is that my guy, Was that somebody else? The, the way it works best for us, and what I would recommend to most curlers, is find a team. Find a group of people who you would probably hang around with anyways.
11: As for his advice to first-timers, McElwee notes this.
3: Be patient. Be patient. Listen to what the more experienced people tell you, and just... Don't get discouraged because it takes a while. It's it's one of those games that's easy to pick up, kinda, but it's really difficult to master and make every you know make every shot that you can and do your best on each one.
11: For Impact News, I'm Lauren Gadleski. In addition,
4: Michigan has welcomed the luge to its sports scene. Our very own Stephen Rich discovered its prevalence in the West Coast city of Muskegon.
2: Every four years, the world's best winter athletes get time in the international limelight. During the Winter Olympics, the world watches as athletes slide, sweep, and skate their way to the podium. Now, most may be familiar with some of the popular sports, such as snowboarding and skiing, but some viewers may be left scratching their heads at some of the more obscure sports, like, let's say, the luge. The luge's beginnings go back as far as the 1500s, with tracks being built near the beginning of the 1800s in Switzerland, according to the official website of the Olympics. Because Luge is one of the oldest winter sports, the rules of the sports have always been very basic. The individual or team that makes it down the hill fastest wins. However, because every millisecond matters, the sport has also developed strict equipment regulations. It includes everything from the weight of the sled to the temperature of the skates. Each team must maintain every part of their equipment in order to compete. The high speeds and intensity of this sport has caused the Luge to gain popularity in Michigan. The Muskegon Winter Sports Complex boasts an 850-foot track open to the public throughout the winter. The Sports Complex website says that three-time Olympian Frank Mazley actually designed it. Although it is shorter than the Olympic track, it does provide a similar thrill. The track has eight curves and participants can slide up to 30 miles per hour. Even though Olympians don't train here, it has produced quite a few champions. Five-time Olympian and two-time Olympic medalist Mark Grimmett got his start at the Muskegon track. All it takes is a 15-minute training lesson before you are on your way. You can visit msports.org for more information. For Impact News, I'm Stephen Rich.
4: Impact Exposure, I'm Abby Newton. So far, Germany and Norway lead the medal count, while the United States are in 5th place with 19 medals. We have 10 bronze, 4 silver, and 5 gold. The two Americans that we anticipated to get gold, Mountain Sporter Sean White and Speed Skater Shawnee Davis, both didn't. Uh, White did stand at the podium, however, placing 4th, and Davis fell just short of setting a world record of 3 consecutive gold medals in the men's 1,000-meter competition. He won the gold in the 2006 and 2010 Winter Olympics, but he finished eighth on Wednesday. Most recently, Michigan figure skaters Merle Davis and Charlie White are enjoying the first American ice dancing gold medal with nearly flawless performances. Born and raised in Royal Oak, Michigan, their 116.63 points in the free dance gave them a finishing score of 195.52 points. In slope-style skiing, Team USA stood at every place in the podium in the first-ever ski slope-style competition on Thursday. Joes Christensen won gold for the USA, followed by Gus Kentworthy and Nicholas Goepper, who won silver and bronze for the States. Finally, in men's ice hockey, USA and Canada are expected to face off in an intense semifinal this week. As I watch these Olympians from home, I am absolutely in awe of their capabilities. But I also find myself exciting when the underdog wins. I found myself almost craving that moment. I was curious. So I spoke with sports psychology doctoral student Allison Eade about how the underdog does in fact win. Now, she's done extensive research about how unsuccessful teams outperform successful teams.
0: There are so many different factors that can contribute to why successful teams might lose to unsuccessful teams that we typically just pick different pieces of it. Um, one of the things that we we typically look at group dynamics, but I also look at overconfidence. So if I'm a really successful athlete or part of a really successful team, and I'm preparing for a competition against someone who's maybe not as good as I am, I might not be trying as hard in the weeks up to it, mm-hmm. and so by the time it gets to the competition, I might not. I might come out flat or I might not be as ready for the game as maybe my opponent would be. And uh, were you surprised by any of the results? Uh, I think that logically it makes sense. Um, uh, One of the big issues is it can be really hard to predict when it will happen Mm -hmm. because a lot of this is happening internally and you can't see it from the outside. So as spectators we might see, oh. These athletes just blew it or they weren't ready or something, but we don't really know what's going on in their heads unless we get in there and try to find out. Sure.
4: Wow, that's very interesting. And now how does um, an unsuccessful team outperform a successful team in terms of the Olympics? You know,
0: What are your thoughts on when it happens on one of the world's biggest stages? I think the Olympics are really unique because everyone has to be pretty successful to get there in the first place. And so the difference between a really successful team and an unsuccessful team is pretty small. Um, but to be a really successful team and to have that kind of expectation placed on you to win, especially when you've been preparing for years and years and training and everything is riding on this moment, that a lot of athletes don't necessarily know how to deal with that pressure, Mm. and a lot of teams haven't really prepared for that kind of pressure. Uh, So if you're not as successful coming in, you really have nothing to lose and probably no fear, so you're just going out there and doing whatever you can, whereas these maybe teams that are better on paper might have a lot more to lose and might be a little more afraid, have more, more anxiety. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite underdog story from history? Oh, from history? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I love the Olympics in general. And right now I've been following the figure skating a lot. So there's this 15-year-old skater from Russia. I know I should be rooting for the U.S. <laughs> teams. But uh, I think she's been kind of an underdog until now. Mm-hmm. And so I really hope that she can pull it out because she's so young. She, uh, over the weekend, I was watching her perform, and it was amazing. I mean, she, lo- she didn't look real out there. She was so graceful. <laughs> wow. Anyone else are, that you're watching in particular? Um, I've mostly been following speed skating mm-hmm. now. and um, I don't think we've been doing quite as well as we'd hoped in speed skating, but it's really fun to watch, and it's one of those events where just even the tiniest slip-up can cost you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's really fun to see how people deal with that when they're in those situations
4: and you're an athlete yourself Uh, Mm -hmm. you were talking that you performed in college so do you want to talk about that experience
0: doing being a heptathlete um I think that's really what got me interested in sports psychology because to be a track athlete takes a lot of physical training but in the heptathlon it's a multi-day multi-event um and In order to do well overall, you have to be able to recover from maybe some poor performances here and there. Mm -hmm. And you've got to come back, you know, within 10, 15 minutes and do something else. And so in order to perform well, you really have to be trained mentally as well as physically. And so that got me interested in what makes someone successful Mm -hmm. down the road.
4: What was your favorite event at the hepta- in the heptathlon?
0: The hurdles. The hurdles. I love the hurdles. What was the distance? Is it one hundred or mm-hmm. did you do three hundred? Okay. I did three hundred in high school, and then it's four hundred in college. Oh, that's right. Gosh, I love that. That's great.
4: <laughs> uh, and then, how about you know in your experience in college athletics and maybe beyond? Did you experience or uh, realize you know things that were triggering in your head when you were the less successful person or the more successful person?
0: I think. I've been able to look back and think about all the things I wish I could do over again (laughs) and what I could do better now that I have some more knowledge. Uh, I think learning how to prepare for a big event, because you really don't know what it's like until you're there. Mm -hmm. And now what I'd love to be able to do is help athletes be able to have that kind of preparation leading up to it so that once they're there, they can can perform at their best. But it's something that's really difficult to do if you haven't experienced it before. Mm -hmm. And how much of athletics is mental? I would say a ton, especially at the higher levels. I don't think you can really separate the physical and the mental. So Mm -hmm. I think that more attention needs to be paid to the mental along with the physical.
4: And have you looked at all into how Olympians prepare for that mental battle? I mean, are there exercises they do? Is it just feeling confident in your
0: abilities? Or what are your thoughts on that? A lot of Olympic athletes use uh, sports psychologists or sports psychology consultants now, and they do a lot of mental skills training. Uh, They might use things like goal setting, self-talk. I'm a big fan of imagery, visualizing yourself in the moment. So especially at these really important events, if you can sort of picture yourself and work your way through different scenarios ahead of time, dealing with the emotions you might feel. How to, how to tune out distractions like the crowds and the media and the Olympic Village and everything, if you can prepare for that mentally, you can do it without physically being there at the moment. So that once you're there, you feel like you've done it before.
4: And in terms of that imagery, is it you close your eyes and you think to yourself, do you vocalize it or does somebody
0: else kind of talking you through it? What works best? It depends on the individual athlete and their preferences. Sometimes athletes will record scripts and then play them back, either in their voice or someone else's voice. Uh, along with different relaxation exercises. So you really have to be pretty relaxed. And then you either can think your way through it, picture it. You try to make it as vivid as possible to try to recreate the moment, incorporating all the senses, like seeing colors and the right smells and the right feels and everything. And so that's why it takes practice, because it's hard to do. I love the Olympics. I love watching the Olympics. Uh, I know that there are other issues that you're probably addressing in the radio show that go along with it. But just from a pure athlete standpoint, I think it's so great to be able to celebrate all the years of hard work that they put in, and hear their stories, and just see it all come together. Mm-hmm. It just I love watching them celebrate after they win, and it's also just so heartbreaking when you see people lose. Mm-hmm. Um, but for so many people, just being there is such a great experience that you just can't help but be happy for all those athletes who get to be there.
4: Absolutely, are these people just super weird, and you know have that ability to focus as for four years and. You know, more than that, to train for that moment? Or are we the ones who are weird who can't do that
0: in terms of sports psychology? Uh, I think that Olympians are really not like the rest of us. <laughs> I do think that they are kind of their own breed of person who genetically, just what they can do physically is superior to what we can be, but also mentally, they have to be so much better Mm -hmm. to just to get to that stage.
4: As we continue to stare in amazement at these athletes, we notice the mottos and symbols of the Olympic Games. It is a time that the world comes together through athletics, despite political turmoil or social issues. The symbol of the Games is the five interlocking rings, representing the main global areas. and the Olympic motto, it's sitius altius fortius. It means swifter, higher, stronger. And Sochi created the model, Hot, Cool, Yours, to represent the 2014 Games. Now, as we were researching the Olympic Games, we came across some funny and interesting information. I'll let Impact's Meg Abibi fill you in
9: on our findings. Sochi, also known as Vladimir Putin's favorite vacation spot, is actually quite warm. The city's coast is outlined with palm trees, and temperatures have reached a high of 52 degrees. Weather like this has caused a halt in the games. Events like the Men's Super Combine were actually pushed up an hour to prevent playing at a warmer time. Olympic officials say athletes should not be concerned, however. Snow machines and insulated tarps have been working in the region for the last year to maintain a proper snowy environment. The snow machines are even supplied by local Michigan company, Snowmakers Incorporated. The company sent over 400 machines to Sochi for the games. Athletes have still voiced their concerns on the safety with competing on the slippery snow. A record of skiers have slid and fallen more than they usually do during practice. While it may be considered warm in Sochi, some of the participants in this year's games come from steamier climates. The list includes Costa Rica, Jamaica, and Fiji. There are plenty of newcomers in the Olympics as well. Zimbabwe, Paraguay, and Malta are all sending representatives for the first time. Their warm climates do not foster conditions for mostly events, so many of the athletes were forced to train in other countries. The Polynesian island Tonga is also sending a representative for the first time, Bruno Banyani. He is Tonga's first and only athlete in the 2014 Games. The Tongan Luger was once known as Fuihei Sami, but he legally changed his name to Bruno to better promote the German underwear company that sponsors him. Banyani competed in the Luge men's singles on February 8th and placed in 32nd. For Impact News, I'm Mega Bubba.
4: As we conclude our conversation about the 2014 Olympics, we couldn't help but wonder what Michigan State students thought about the games. We decided to ask them what event they think would be a good addition to the next Olympics.
9: I went around campus and asked some fellow Spartans what they thought.
11: If I could have any add, add any
5: Olympic sport, I would make it definitely broomball.
9: My name is Emma Fernandez. I'm a senior kinesiology major, and I want softball and baseball added to the Summer Olympics.
5: If I were to
6: create any Olympic sport, it would be MSU Ultimate.
9: For me, I'd like to see cliff diving. With your Impact News, I'm Carmen Scruggs. Perhaps we will see
4: those in the next Olympics, but for now, the 2014 Winter Olympics will continue in Sochi until February 23rd. The closing ceremony will be broadcasted at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on that day. From Impact, we wish all of the athletes good luck. Special thanks to Professors Mark Wilson, Eva Kassens-Noor, and Lisa Robinson for guiding our knowledge by way of the online module class Mega Events Inside the Winter Olympics. This class is open to the public, and you can sign up through the Canvas Network. And special thanks to our hardworking news team, our producer Gabriella Saldivia, our station manager Sam Riddle, and our general manager Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Abby Newton, and this is Impact Exposure. 88.9 FM with the coverage of your 2014 Olympics.